The Enigma of Oaks Ames, Oaks Ames Symposium, Stonehill College, September 21st. Our final speaker is T.J. Stiles. Stiles is a well-known American historian and biographer who has written on 19th century historical figures, Jesse James, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and George Armstrong Custer. The last two biographies won him the Pulitzer Prize. Given his extensive knowledge of history in the second half of the 19th century, and especially in the case of railroad tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt, TJ can provide us with the context of Oakes' times. Without an understanding of Oakes' actions in that context, we cannot get the full measure of the man. Uh, TJ Stiles is an old friend of mine, and he's the author of um, three major works, all biographies, all fascinating reading, particularly for the way in which they create the context in which these lives were led. One was uh, Jesse James, the last rebel of the Civil War. The second one was the first tycoon, the epic life of Cornelius Vanderbilt. All that did was win the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award the same year. And the third one, when I remember when he first told me he was doing this, I thought, what are you going to do with this? How does he measure up against these other guys? Custer's Trials, the life of George Custer. It was a life on the frontier of a new America. And then I read the book, and I saw what he was going to do with it. He's a, a member of the Authors Guild Council. He's on the executive board of the Organization of American Historians and uh, the Society of American Historians Executive Board as well. He also has the courage to go through life as an independent scholar, and um, I admire that. He's been a Guggenheim Fellow, he's uh, been an NEH public scholar, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for the Custer book as well. Now, I've known him for a number of years, and I'd like to tell you how I first got to meet him, because it tells you a lot about his character, that old Lincoln story, the content of his character. I was, I had finished the ghoul, and I was working on some other stuff, and I got an email from somebody I didn't know saying that he was interested, he wanted to work, do a biography of Cornelius Vanderbilt, but he wanted to know if, in fact, I was working on such a project because he didn't want to step on my toes and get in the way of that. I wrote him back. There, there had not been a good biography of Vanderbilt since Wheaton Lane's in 1945. And um, I said, much as I would like to do this, I simply have too much other stuff to do. But thank you so much for taking the courtesy to find out whether I was working on this. Of course, then he had the bad taste to go on and win two Pulitzer Prizes. <laughs> so, but ever since that time, he and I have been friends in frequent companies. We've had several cases where our work has enabled us, like today, to give talks at the same uh, venue so that we get to get together. Um, He's a terrific fellow, and he's also very, very deeply experienced in karate. So don't mess with him. T.J. Stiles.
When people say that, I, I always wonder if they were planning on messing with me otherwise. So um, I want to thank, uh, first of all, Fred Ames for uh, making it possible for me to be here and for uh, um, Stonehill College for hosting this event and also to my friend and mentor, uh, Mari Klein, who's, who's done so much for me in my work and is a splendid writer as well as a scholar. And that's the sweet spot where I try to operate, why I've been writing biographies. Finding that overlap between scholarly and literary virtues, writing about human beings and telling, writing narratives that are satisfying in themselves and also trying to understand our world. Um, I hope I'm a, a good public speaker. I'm reminded of my grandfather who uh, spent his last year in the pharmaceutical business doing talks at conventions. And in the lobby, someone came up to him and said, you know, is this guy any good? Because I've got tickets to the ball game and I'm thinking about going. <laughs> my grandfather said, well, yeah, I've heard him a few times and sometimes I think he's okay. Sometimes he's disappointed me. So I hope I don't disappoint you. Um, I, what we've been doing is, it's very interesting. It works very well without any pre-planning. We have been starting off very closely focused on Oaks Ames and the Ames family and we've gradually been coming forward not only through time but also expanding outward. And so I'm going to be not focused so much directly on Oaks Ames as much as putting his life in context, looking at the larger world and seeing how it connects to a transitional time. Now, we just heard about the year in which he passed away in 1873. And this was an incredibly dramatic year. Uh, we have, of course, his censure and his tragic death. We have, as, as uh, Mari mentioned, the salary grab, which was controversial when Congress raised its own um, uh, salaries. You have this major coinage act in which silver was demonetized, something that puts everybody to sleep today, and back then was known as the crime of 73. It was a huge deal. Uh, you have um, some of the climactic episodes in the West, which I'm actually going to mention were happening in 1873. You had the end of a major federal offensive against the Ku Klux Klan in the South. Uh, you have the building of one of the great industrial works starting the age of, of truly large-scale industrialization, uh, Andrew Carnegie's uh, Edgar Thompson Steelworks. They have the Panic of 1873, starting the longest depression until the Great Depression of the 20th century. And you also have a publication of an interestingly named novel by Mark Twain. This is this year and the period around this year. It's, it's sort of a place where the river of time narrows and speeds up. And we get the rapids. And we really see a transition in history between one era and the next. And so what we see are some things I'm going to drill down on that are very much tied to Ames and to Union Pacific and Credit Mobilier. We see a new definition of the corporation and the, the birth of big business really comes into focus at this time. We see a climax of Western conquest and the classic age of 19th century westward expansion is happening. We see the, the birth of liberal reform, which meant something very different in the 19th century. Um, and the end of Reconstruction, which is a huge part of the story of American history at this time, tied to Ames and tied to the railroads, surprisingly. And we also have the birth of a new plutocracy, not just simply wealthy people, but the, the people with a new lifestyle, a new level of wealth, and all of that fits together to help to change the way politics worked and the way we argued about politics and the economy. And we begin to see our world, our time, come into focus through this era, which really pivots on 1873. Now, 
again, we've been talking about the Transcontinental Railroad, specifically the first one. And usually the image that we focus on is that of the physical expanse of construction. And I love this as a, a rather different view than you usually see of the meeting of Promontory Point, taken from actually from one of the locomotives. And as Mari said, this is a major achievement. Vanderbilt was involved with the steamboat steamship lines to California. And so for a decade and a half, to get to and from California took at best about 25 days. And except for 1861, I believe, is when they finished a, a telegraph line across the continent. That meant news took 25 days to go one way. This meant that a major source of gold, which was capital, um, was going by ship, and it took 25 days to reach uh, um, financial markets in the East. Building that railroad was a very big deal. But, as Mari also was talking about, and I'm going to expand on this, this whole issue of corruption and the whole question of credit mobilier, and I love this, this image because it shows Oakes Ames being asked to commit ritual suicide as if he was a samurai, and then everybody else is sort of saying, not me, you're the one to do it, um, that this actually brings into focus questions about the corporation. What is the corporation? And when, as Mari was just talking about, the problems that, that sort of demanded that Union Pacific have a credit mobilier was the fact that there was misguided regulation from Congress. That at a time during the Civil War when the credit of the United States was extremely important. As a matter of fact, the 14th Amendment, which was drafted and ratified soon after the Civil War, actually has a provision in it saying the credit of the United States shall not be questioned. So this federally chartered company was not allowed to sell its stock below par. And there's a long, complicated story between, behind par and how important it was in the 19th century. The point is, is that Congress is, sort of passes this high-minded regulation which totally ignores the reality of financial markets and leaves Union Pacific crippled when it comes to actually turning its stock into a way of accessing capital to build. And so they have to use this workaround of credit mobilier. Now, what's interesting about that to me is the fact that this was regulation in a way we don't use anymore, through the charter. And that's very important because that points to the way the whole definition of a corporation changed at this time. Now, I'm going to go to, to my guy. We're going to step away from Oakes, um, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt started off as a steamboat entrepreneur opposing corporations. He was a Jacksonian. And in ways that completely defy the way we think about politics today, the people on the so-called left, the radicals, they were laissez-faire. Because before the Civil War, there really was no big business. Anybody could go out and start a shovel works in a shed and someday dream of being the top producer. That the idea that anybody who could get together a little capital could compete and win was very much in the ether. And so corporations were seen very differently. We see this in 1838, so Vanderbilt had been in business now for 20 years, and he took over in 1838 the first corporation, the Richmond Turnpike Company, that he ever ran. And he was sued by his cousin, who was a competitor, because he was running that corporation with the sole view of profit. Now, you get sued today if you don't run a corporation for the sole view of profit. The point was that corporations were created one by one in the early republic by state governments 
with a public purpose. And they were given special privileges, not just limited liability, but often a monopoly and other special rights to induce private capital to come in and build something the public needs. Now, sometimes people came in, they said, I've got an idea, and they would get the, the state to charter an idea. Daniel D. Tompkins, as vice president of the United States, got the state of New York to charter a company to give him monopoly rights to build a turnpike across Staten Island. Also, he had a monopoly right on a steam ferry between Staten Island and Manhattan, the city of New York. His cousin was competing against it. Vanderbilt took over the Richmond Turnpike Company and got sued because that charter, which gave monopoly rights, also had requirements that he run the ferries at times when they weren't profitable to run, you know, midnight, whatever. And Vanderbilt stopped doing all the things that were unprofitable. He saw the advantages of a corporation, which he'd spent 20 years denouncing <laughs> and for, as a businessman, but he began to change it from within, and he was far from alone in this. He began to turn it into a vehicle for private interests as opposed to a semi-private public work. And so he got sued for running it with the sole view of profit. Now, during the uh, period before the Civil War, um, Vanderbilt began to compete in, as I mentioned, the steamship lines to California. And he was competing against a, the Pacific Mail and the United States Mail steamship companies, which were not chartered by the federal government, but were heavily subsidized through very large mail contracts because they were set up just before the gold rush when the federal government was worried about maintaining contact with that distant, newly conquered Pacific coast after the Mexican War. And what happened with the gold rush is they made huge amounts of money and they had a large federal subsidy. And Vanderbilt competed against them and forced them to cut their prices, and at times they actually bribed him to stop competing with them, and so they were obviously monopolists, supported by the government. The New York Times actually condemned Vanderbilt for competing against these legitimate enterprises, because again, they were identified with a public purpose. But by 1866, railroads especially, were the main type of large corporation, the almost, not quite, but almost the only type of publicly traded corporation, and increasingly they're beginning to be seen as private entities separate from government, separate from the public interest. So in 1866, you see the New York Times publishing this editorial, The Tyranny of Corporations, which just a few years before they'd been denouncing uh, they'd, been they'd been supporting corporations and denouncing private individuals like Vanderbilt who competed against them. So we see the public mood is beginning to change. Corporations, because railroads now are so powerful and they're not even yet near the peak of their power, because they are increasingly seen as pursuing a private interest separate from the private good, that old mercantilist definition of the corporation is beginning to fade. This accelerates in the 1860s. 1867, again, I'm, I'm sorry I'm using uh, Vanderbilt examples, um, but he was such a tough old cuss that he's fun to talk about. 1867, Vanderbilt owned, well, controlled, the two railroads that run into New York City, steam railroads. They connected to the West at Albany with the New York Central. Well, he had fights with the New York Central Railroad. He makes a deal. Then an enemy of his and Henry Keep carries out a leverage buyout. Henry Keep hates Vanderbilt's guts. So he cancels this contract with Vanderbilt. He does it in deep winter when the Hudson River is frozen and he can't transfer his passengers and freight to steamboats. And Vanderbilt says, I will no longer accept 
um, any trains from the New York Central Railroad over my lines. A winter storm descends on Manhattan, cutting off even ferry traffic. The newspaper said, we are in a state of blockade. If this continues much longer, the people of New York are going to begin to starve. And one man at the head of two critical corporations, the New York uh, the New York and Harlem Railroad and the Hudson River Railroad, because he was in a fight with his connecting line to the West, because the weather prohibited uh, shipping traffic from reaching Manhattan, was able to erect a blockade around the nation's largest city and busiest port. Needless to say, this was slightly controversial, and it begins to highlight the power of the corporation. And the New York State Legislature starts talking about Regulation, not through the charter, but by passing a law giving the state the power to manage the business battles between companies that the public depends upon. And Vanderbilt, who knew that this would settle out very quickly because the near central stock price collapsed, Henry Keep couldn't meet his margin calls, he had to dump all his stock. Guess who was the next president of the New York Central? Cornelius Vanderbilt, he'd bought all that stock. Um, so he knew this wouldn't last very long, but the public was alarmed. He goes to Albany to the state legislature, and they say, well, what do you think about this bill, you know, managing disputes? And he's still of the mindset that, you know, the Jacksonian mindset, the public is served by every individual pursuing their own interests as vigorously as possible. And he says, if you can pass a law getting men to protect their interests and to serve their interests more effectively than their interests will compel them to do, that's well and good but I don't think you can. The idea of a public interest separate from the private interest doesn't even register with him. And with the public, they're beginning to go the opposite direction. They see a clear distinction. Now, this continues. One of the most famous episodes, 1868, a fight over the Erie Railway when Vanderbilt, to punish his friend Daniel Drew, tries to corner the stock. Two unknowns on the Erie board rise up and manage to defeat that attempt by Vanderbilt. Uh, Jay Gould and his friend Jim Fisk, who's the corpulent fellow on the smaller railway there, um, they become lasting enemies as a result of this battle. But it also involves episodes that, um, oh dear, sorry, that line is overlapping. Uh, episodes, famous episodes of, of corruption. Jay Gould goes to Albany and um, the state legislature has voted against the Erie Directorate. Um, Jay Gould has all of the state legislators file through his hotel room. They come out much wealthier and convinced of the justice of Gould's cause. And so this is a case where the people sees, aha, corporations are not just partners of government. Now they are corrupting government. And the most influential writer about that episode is a man from a family no one's heard of. His grandfather was... Um, uh, John Quincy Adams, his brother was Henry Adams. His name was Charles Francis Adams Jr., who was actually much more influential than Henry Adams for much of his life. He wrote a, a great article called A Chapter of Erie. And he said, as I quote here, not in that chapter, but not in that essay, but in another, he said, universal suffrage can only mean the government of ignorance and vice that he saw these episodes of corruption. He saw Boss Tweed, and he saw the, um, as his friends called it, an ignorant plutocracy, allying with, you know, Irish-elected um, corrupt governments. And he drew a very cynical conclusions from this. And he is a part of an emerging movement, which I'm going to come back to, the liberal reformers, who want to deal with corruption, but are also suspicious of government itself. 
which complicates this whole question of, of regulation. But moving on. So other episodes happen that, again, seal in the public mind the idea of corporations and railroads as corrupting influences. The South Improvement Company, in which uh, the two key players of the Erie Railway was also involved, um, uh, Tom Scott, who was kind of the manager under J. Edgar Thompson, superintendent and vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, one of the four most powerful railroads in America. Vanderbilt, head of the New York Central Railroad, which he's now merged with his railways, the, another of the four most powerful railways. And in Cleveland, where the Erie, the, the New York Central, and where the Pennsylvania all meet, um, they all come together. That's the headquarters of this rising power in oil refining, Standard Oil. And John D. Rockefeller very wisely plays upon the struggle for traffic between these railways, and also he's got the Great Lakes shipping also he can rely on, so he can pit them against each other. And so they're constantly undercutting each other um, for freight. So they finally come to an, a conclusion, and Tom Scott gets within 30 minutes of introduction in this Pennsylvania legislature, he gets a company chartered. The governor signs the bill 30 minutes after it's introduced to the legislature to charter the South Improvement Company. And what it does is it serves as a device for dividing up the oil traffic into giving Standard Oil an advantage over its competitors. Well, you know, this gets exposed, the whole thing falls apart, but rather than it being a uh, monstrous attempt by the railroads to corrupt the legislature, it's really about their desperate attempt to stop undercutting each other and to organize the competition between fixed entities that aren't going anywhere. They're struggling to bring order out of the chaos of the marketplace. And the person who's really benefiting is um, John D. Rockefeller in Standard Oil. So they later on go on to other moves. But this, again, is another episode in which the public begins to see the corporation as something quite different from its old model of um, a kind of public work funded by private parties. Of course, railways are also, as Mari mentioned, the first big business in America. And they begin to, to vastly larger than any other kind of company, both geographically and also in their massive consumption of capital. They're not only having to run their railroad, railways all the time, they're constantly having to replace tracks. Um, rails are a huge expense and they wear out. They've got rolling stock that needs to be replaced. There's always constant demands for capital. So they're gigantic in scope. They're huge players on, on international capital markets. And they are by far the largest uh, companies, and they're absolutely central to American life. Everything begins to move by rail. Uh, the first all-rail grain shipment from Chicago to New York is, I think it's 1866. And pretty soon, rail vastly overshadows the old Great Lakes shipping, though, of course, that continues. Another huge corporation is uh, the Pennsylvania. And the Pennsylvania, by contrast with Vanderbilt's railway, is a company that is more along the, a more modern model in which there isn't one big stockholder, but in which you've got professional managers, Jagger Thompson and Tom Scott, who are running a corporation in which you've got thousands of anonymous passive investors, many of whom are in Europe, and they run that company very well. But as I'll mention in a minute, they also pioneer the type of model that Credit Mobilier uses to funnel business through shell corporations. 
They also use shell corporations or, or holding companies to, ch to lease and control a vast network of railways to the west of Pennsylvania, including the uh, um, Fort Wayne and others that give them a connection to Chicago. There's a big fight for uh, getting access to Chicago, which is really the center of the rising agricultural and industrial west, and to be able to control that traffic to the great ports of the east. In business terms, this is vastly more important than the transcontinental railways. Um, as the Railway Gazette wrote in, I think, 1872, it said, um, one railway east of the Mississippi, only 100 miles long, is going to bring more traffic to, in that case, one of, to Vanderbilt's railways than the entire length of the Union Pacific and Central Pacific. So it's a long time before the, the successful railway managers in the east are really interested in the transcontinental railways. They are built far ahead of demand. And that's a reason why you see Oaks Ames moving into it and being a part of it, who's not built his career on railways. It's because the railway guys are like, we got a good business over here, thank you. <laughs> We're gonna stick to it. Um, also, of course, railways introduce scale and size. You can see that in the huge building campaigns. They build huge uh, uh, constructions, again, I'm. Sorry, I'm relying on uh, New York Central Railway. Uh, Grand Central Depot, completed in 1871, is the largest railway depot in the Western Hemisphere, second largest in the world. Um, these are the railway yards now underground, north of Grand Central, completed in 1871 in the heart of Manhattan. And then also, bigness begins to spread, and we saw this actually in the shovel works. You know, America was a, a small family-owned Factories dominated America before the Civil War. But in 1873, you see uh, Andrew Carnegie is beginning to build his first great steelworks as he launches Carnegie Steel. Now, what's interesting about it is that name, J. Edgar Thompson. His main customers for steel for a long time are U.S. railways. He had been the right-hand man to Thomas Scott. And he had actually gotten his start as an investor by acting as a bagman for Tom Scott and J. Edgar Thompson, who, again, are great railway managers. They do a great job with Pennsylvania. But whenever they have to contract for, say, sleeping cars or for bridge building, they would, set, they would either demand kickbacks personally or they would set up shell companies that they personally owned that would contract with the Pennsylvania, very well-established, very wealthy company, they would contract with the Pennsylvania, and then they would subcontract the work through their shell company. And then Tom Scott and Jager Thompson and their assistant, Andrew Carnegie, would personally profit. And Carnegie actually built his career by combining, like his mentors, real business ability with a knowledge of how basically kind of crony capitalism works. And his early bridge company, most of his business was for the Pennsylvania Railway. His early ironworks, most of their business was for the Pennsylvania Railway. His steelworks, he names it the Jagger Thompson Steelworks. Most of their business was for his pals. And so he does a good job. He's successful. He he's, cuts costs. He builds an efficient, huge ironworks or steelworks. But he also shows that credit mobilier is, in fact, not only necessary, but reflects a wider trend in the railway business, something that had been done often for purely for a personal profit in other circumstances. Now, what's interesting is the transcontinental railways is where we see that old mercantilist idea of the corporation 
that it serves a public purpose, it resurfaces and it lasts longest in the transcontinental railways. And there's an irony to that. Many people think of the, again, because it was such a huge accomplishment building a railway across this vast, empty West, we tend to think of it as this is modernity. This is in industry and, and technology coming to the West. In, in ideological, political, conceptual terms, it's actually a throwback to a model that's almost dead, has almost disappeared in America. And that is the kind of, you know, public-private partnership. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about Union Pacific. 1864, Congress chartered Northern Pacific, which, as you can see, we've got um, up here, I've got a little arrow that goes from Duluth, which is uh, still a major um, port on the Great Lakes, and later because of the St. Lawrence Seaway is actually an ocean port. And you've, they're trying to build a connection to the Northwest, which was settled by U.S. settlers starting in the 1840s. And so they want to build across here. Um, and this draws in another great financial figure, Jay Cook. Now, Northern Pacific um, faces problems that the Union Pacific faced, and even greater problems in many ways. As the 1870s go on, Jay Cook actually begins to have to rely on his own pocket as financial agent for the company to keep it afloat. Um, and this really comes to a head for him in 1873. 1873, Union Pacific has built as far west as Bismarck in the Dakota Territory, now in North Dakota. And uh, it's got to uh, survey and build across the Northwest, much as Union Pacific and Central Pacific had to survey and build across the Central Plains and the Sierras. Well, the problem is, is that this area was controlled by the Lakotas and their allies, the Cheyennes, uh, and Arapahoes and some other nations. Um, you'll notice that when we go back here, um, because it's up here in the Northern Plains, there had been a war in, with the Lakotas in 1868, a Red Clouds War, and the U.S. actually basically surrendered with the Fort Laramie Treaty. Why did it do that? Because of the completion of Union Pacific that the Bozeman Trail, which ran to mining country in the mountain northwest in Montana and elsewhere, running through some environmentally sensitive and necessary areas for the, the nomadic lifestyle and economy, um, those trails were no longer necessary because now the Union Pacific allowed feeder lines and rail hubs farther west, which are much more efficient than going on this long trail through hostile territory. The federal government felt it could abandon those trails and forts in Lakota territory without any problem. So, um, in fact, as a result of the 1868 treaty, the Lakota's conquest of other nations is actually ratified by the federal government. However, in the Pacific Railway Acts, they actually commit the federal government to extinguishing Indian title wherever the railways are going to build. And so railway expansion and wars against native people are very closely tied together. And they're often the cause of wars with native people. And also because they tended to build through areas, and just as migrants pass through, areas that were uh, necessary for nomadic lifestyles and for the bison herds to spend the winters along rivers. And in those high dry plains, there are very few riverbeds, and they have places where cattle and horses, I mean cattle, 
bison and horses can spend the winter and survive. And that's exactly where the Indian or railroad crews want to build. That's exactly where migrants pass through. And as they pass through, they cut down timber, they destroy the grazing. Just even without warfare, they begin to wear down and make untenable the high plains nomadic economy. And that is one of the driving factors in the wars with native people. So 1873, Custer goes west. Oh, there we go. Custer goes west. He goes to the northern plains. And he is, what's he doing? He's escorting a survey party for Northern Pacific. They did it the year before as well. And he actually fights two battles with Sitting Bull. And surprisingly, considering in light of the way he dies, he actually fights quite well. And, you know, being somebody who couldn't see, uh, he, he never got into a frying pan without immediately making for the fire. He was on this expedition. He'd already been arrested on that expedition by his commander. Um, he was in real trouble. He was talking about mutinying. It was awful. But then he fights two battles and he fights quite well. And he holds off Sitting Bull and his commander ends up being very proud of him. But what happens is it's setting up a new conflict with Native people, and it's also highlighting the troubles that Union Northern Pacific is facing as it builds across the West. Troubles that Union Pacific built through. Northern Pacific, though, is running into trouble. Now, what happens? Well, it's not just because of this, the Jay Gould's troubles with maintaining uh, Northern Pacific. Also, the fact that railways are beginning to integrate the U.S. into European capital markets. And in 1873, real trouble appears in Europe. There's a panic in the Vienna Exchange. I believe the Bank of England is beginning to curtail, um, raise its interest rates. And these ripples are felt in the U.S. Meanwhile, you've got a huge expansion of railway building. In that previous map I showed, you see the dense mesh of railways in the east, and now you're beginning to build out railways in the west, including the more speculative railways like Northern Pacific. And so the demand for railway securities, the main financial instruments that are marketed in, in the big financial markets, is growing weak. 1873, Jay Gould can no longer meet his commitments. He is sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And in the fall of 1873, you have a huge collapse in the stock market that, as I mentioned, leads to the longest depression in American history um, until the Great Depression. Half of the nation's railways go into receivership. I think it's something close to half of the nation's iron mills close. Uh, you have new creatures appearing on the scene, the tramp and the hobo. The word tramp actually appears. You've got riots of the unemployed. It's an incredible disaster that strikes. And that is very much tied to the overbuilding of railways and to the, the uh, financial integration of the U.S. into global markets. Now... As this is playing out, and by the way, uh, Mari mentioned somebody who, who in my Vanderbilt book plays a big role in this, which is Horace F. Clark, Vanderbilt's ne'er-do-well son-in-law, but that's for another topic. I could give two lectures on him. Um, so you've got the U.S. has been supporting the Northern Pacific, still goes under. Panic begins to bring everything down, and uh, you see the, that a real sort of sense of dread and a real questioning is beginning to take place. Well, one sign of this questioning is this fellow, Mark Twain, uh, Samuel Clemens, for those of you who knew him personally. Um, and he, along with Charles Dudley Warner, publishes a novel, The Gilded Age, in 1873. The Gilded Age is not about lifestyles of the rich and famous. It is about government corruption. You can tell which parts Twain wrote because they're hilarious. The other parts are really boring. 
Um, and for example, there is a corruption scandal in the book in which uh, Senator Dilworthy denounces the person who accuses him, and then Congress passes a resolution to investigate the uh, whistleblower who brought this to the, uh, um, to the attention of Congress. Dilworthy gets off scot-free. That's the way the public sees Congress, and certainly the way public saw the credit mobilier scandal. This sensitivity to corruption, and as I mentioned, the rise of these liberal reformers, like Charles Francis Adams Jr., they are also tied into the other great story of the age, Reconstruction. We have to remember that as a result of the Reconstruction Acts, that we see black men are beginning to vote, they are beginning to hold office, they are beginning to play a part in the body politic across the South. And we have a number of members of Congress who are black. You've got three Southern states that are black majority by population. And one of them in particular, Mississippi, is very well run, is not notably corrupt, um, certainly nowhere near as corrupt as the state of New York. Um, and yet there is great resistance in the South. As I mentioned, there is a big offensive that President Grant initiates from 1871 to 1873. Custer plays a role in Kentucky fighting the Klan. And there is a, this brief period in which there, the U.S. government puts on the books and in the Constitution civil rights and actually enforces it. But Southern politicians play upon the idea of corruption, and they really play up the idea of these uh, governments as being corrupt. And they also get shrewder and shrewder about the use of force after those Ku Klux Klan prosecutions are carried out. This man, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar, um, in fact, who had been a Confederate leader, designed an insurrection in the state of Mississippi in 1875, in which they would put out armed patrols in the streets, and they actually were killing scores of, of black voters and po black politicians and local activists. But whenever federal troops came through, boom, they disappeared from sight. So the reports back to Washington are, everything's fine here. Then the minute the federal troops are out of sight, the Democratic Party is back on the streets. Um, they overthrew a very efficient government led by the father of Blanche Ames Ames, Adelbert Ames, from another branch. Um, and Adelbert Ames sees his government go down to defeat in 1875, basically through an armed insurrection, when the federal government began to pull back its support for civil rights. Um, by the way, uh, George Plimpton got an earful from President Kennedy, as many of you may know, because Blanche Ames Ames was writing to him furiously because he had praised Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar as a profile in courage and wrote a lot of non total nonsense about Ames, Governor Ames being corrupt. And she was furious, and she was a powerhouse, and a former senator of Massachusetts could not ignore her. And he told Plimpton that her letters were, were beginning to interfere with state business. And so he said, yes, Mr. President, he said, I interviewed him by this. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get my grandmother to stop bothering you. Um, so, so this is all tied into the issue of corruption because they play upon corruption to get Northern support for undermining black civil rights in the South. And there are real scandals. Grant himself is uh, not corrupt, but you know, it's, it's, there's this much difference between this, the corruption that's always been going on ever since the spoils system existed. It's coming to the fore. Part of the story is the sensitivity of the public to corruption. The way in which now people are really paying attention. The whiskey ring which was stealing money from um, whiskey taxes, 
that had its start years before the Grant administration. Um, you have uh, Secretary of War William Belknap. Um, he was taking a skim from allowing somebody to be a, a settler at a, a Western fort. Uh, the money was going to his wife. It was the kind of petty corruption that happened all the time. But now it's beginning to break through. And after the Democrats take control of the House in 1874 uh, in that election, they really don't get going till 1876 because the weirdness of Congress back then. Um, the investigation of Belknap is led by a Democratic congressman who had run for, con for governor before on a wildly racist platform. That's one of his campaign posters. Um, my opponent is for the Negro. I am for the white man. And the one unifying thing that Democrats have, they're divided on financial policy. They're divided on their attitude toward railways. But they're all against Reconstruction. And so the issue of corruption, the issue of, of, of credit mobilier and these other scandals are used for a very dedicated purpose, which is to undermine the whole idea of civil rights. And it's one reason why the federal government eventually pulls back. Now, the, the reformers are a big part of why, um, why this falls apart, and yet it's a mixed bag. They're, they're turned off by Oaks Ames. They're turned off by um, this corruption that's taking place. A lot of them are from the patrician class, an older type of wealth, merchants who aren't in the nitty-gritty, they don't have their hands dirty like the Ameses from, from manufacturing. They aren't the vulgar new rich like Vanderbilt who are out there buccaneering in financial markets and the railways. They're, they're of older families like the Adamses. They're high-minded politicians like Carl Schurz, um, who is a German immigrant from Missouri. Um, there is uh, Theodore Roosevelt Sr., Theodore Roosevelt's father. They're for civil service reform. They're for cleaning up government. And they are beginning to have, they are beginning to get traction, both for good and for ill. Uh, they are against Reconstruction, and yet it's true that government did benefit from having competitive examinations, from having educated uh, people occupying public office. But that also means a lot of underprivileged um, groups that had received the aid of government office, African Americans in the South, Irish in the cities, they get actually excluded. And there's this transitional period before education is broad enough so that, as today, you have a wide array of Americans are in the civil service. But there was a very controversial period where they, were, they wanted to keep the lower classes, the undesirables, out. But, you know, they wanted, which is good, a clean, efficient government. But they also wanted to keep the wrong people out. They were suspicious, like Charles Francis Adams, of democracy. So, you know, this is a complicated period. Um, and, you know, they cared about issues that we don't care about at all today, like the gold standard. The gold standard was, shows that they didn't want to clean up government in order to make it active. They wanted human hands, dirty, filthy human hands, out of the economy. The gold standard is a way of retreating from the economy to just let it work naturally. Let the supply of gold coming out of mines determine how much money we have, which, as Mari mentioned, is deflationary. Um, it shows that the reformists also were not the, the populace of a later generation. It was reform, but also was a very conservative type of reform. Now, the last thing I want to mention that kind of sets us the way, paves the way for today, before I take some questions, is the way in which the rise of the railways, the rise of truly large industrial enterprises, really creates a social change as well as a change in wealth distribution, which also has its role in changing the political argument. 
Um, this is the home of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, this is actually the scene outside his house when he died. Cornelius Vanderbilt was one of the first great corporate tycoons, born in 1794 when George Washington was president, dies in 1877, as I've said, after making deals with John D. Rockefeller personally, fighting with Jay Gould. Um, and yet he lived his entire, he, he, he died with $100 million, which as I mentioned in my book, I don't give modern amounts, but if, if Bill Gates, before the crash of 08, when I was working on my book, could have sold his fortune at full market value for cash, which he couldn't have done, of course, but if he had and gotten the full value, he would have taken every, one out of every about $150 out of circulating in the economy using the Fed's M2 figure. If Vanderbilt could have sold his entire $100 million estate for full market value out of all cash and demand deposits, he would have taken one out of $20 out of the economy. That doesn't mean he owned a 20th of the economy, but it shows you what displacement the railways and a very big person in the railways had economically at that time. So he was enormously wealthy and powerful, and yet he lived in a double-wide brownstone on Washington Square next to the old patricians who had scorned him all his life. However, that $100 million uh, you know, steadily increased with his son William's wise management. So William builds this huge double mansion on Fifth Avenue as soon as the old man is dead. Um, probably Vanderbilt, the, Commodore Vanderbilt wouldn't have liked that. Then his sons, they begin to play, build places like the Biltmore, still the largest private residence in America. Um, also the way in which they socialize and went on vacation even began to change. Vanderbilt went to Saratoga Springs every summer, along with the old patricians. He went to hotels. He drank the mineral water out of the springs. He socialized with hundreds of people on um, the piazza of the Congress Hall Hotel. His sons and grandsons begin to retreat from society. So you have the breakers, and you can just see how isolated it is. Uh, there's this wonderful story as early as, I think it's 1878, about the social column, about the season at Newport. It says, the difference between Newport and other American watering places like Saratoga Springs is that between a private dwelling and a summer home and a summer home. It is emphatically a place of summer homes. The few hotels are regarded as interlopers. In other words, this new industrial wealth, far surpassing the, the Ameses and, and the, the kind of people who were actually involved in the manufacturing process who had family-owned firms, this new uh, sort of financial, international financial market-based wealth, corporate-based wealth, they're beginning to use that wealth to kind of seclude themselves from society, even within wealthy society. Um, this is an earlier generation's costume ball um, at the Academy of Music. And even among the wealthy, it was kind of a public event. Uh, and you have the often struggling for money, George Armstrong Custer is a guest. He's in the devil costume appropriately on the left. Um, you go a generation later, a few years later, William Henry Vanderbilt and his family preparing to go to the opera and a wonderful painting showing really where the Gilded Age in social terms begins. Then you go a few years later, and his son, Cornelius Vanderbilt II, and his wife hold the famous Vanderbilt Ball of 1883 at a cost of $250,000. There are estimates that the costumes people wore amounted to several million dollars, a select group that also helped to seal the Vanderbilt place in the aristocracy. It began to make them, they began to take their place alongside the Van Rensselaers and other very old, the Astors, other old families that had scorned them 
and they, in the later years of the 19th century, they begin to take their place. So this very exclusive, very expensive lifestyle um, really begins to, to, along with the sheer power that they possess and the way in which new corporate industrial processes start to create a working class, people who work for money all their lives, I mean, for wages all their lives. You know, in an earlier America, you know, working for wages was temporary. Then you got your own farm, your own shop. But after the Civil War, you start to see a more of a class structure takes place. So you start to see labor conflict. You start to see some of the markers that define 20th century America emerge. And you have this huge strike in 1877. And you also begin to see a new kind of politics that emerges. And so, you know, the, the Grangers in 1873, the agrarian movement, when they criticized corporations, they were talking about that old uh, public service corporation like Union Pacific. They say, we hold that a state cannot create a corporation that it cannot thereafter control. The idea that a corporation was an artificial entity created very specifically by law to serve the public and, yes, allow investors to profit, that was an idea which by the end of the century really is gone. And so instead, the Supreme Court, starting in 1883 with the Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific decision, they start to say, no, corporations are their own persons. They're private interests that have rights under the 14th Amendment. And there are good reasons for this. We wouldn't want the New York Times Corporation or Fox News or others not to have free speech rights. So, you know, those rights can be very valuable for corporations. We want them to do a lot of things. But it's a change in the way in which we see corporations and think about them. And it also spawns a new political conflict. So you have people like uh, um, progressive Republicans like Theodore Roosevelt. You have radicals like Eugene Debs. And you have other administrative measures begin to emerge in which government, instead of being the partner of corporations, begins to say, okay, we are going to regulate you. You are now separate from us. And so you have the Interstate Commerce Commission emerges, which itself actually was heavily influenced by Charles Francis Adams Jr. and by the liberal reformers who are trying to keep more radical change out of the way. Um, and yet this is the first step toward administrative regulation in which the federal government begins to pass laws treating corporations as entities whose private interests will be at odds with the public interest. And so what happens at the end of this process, a process that we really see beginning to come to a head when with credit mobilier and the whole idea of, of the corporation being on trial, is that our world, the way we think about politics and the economy, our values, um, our debates, and it doesn't matter where you stand on it, really emerges from this, this period. And that a lot of the problems that swallowed up Oak's aims was the fact that you had a new era in which the actual mechanics of modern corporate, uh, modern corporate capitalism are beginning to take place. And there is a logic and a, and a market um, dynamic that exists. And yet you also have laws that are passed with an earlier idea of the corporation in mind, passed by people who are thinking about we have to regulate it through its charter, putting these unrealistic requirements on it. You have this, this intersection of government and the corporation leads to entanglements like, you know, congressmen seeing no problem with buying credit mobilier stock on 100% on credit and allowing the dividends to pay off the cost of the stock. You know, things that today look like in, insane conflicts of interest at the time were just becoming controversial. 
the whole idea that there was some kind of controversy with this begins to emerge at that time. And so by the end of this process, by the, around the turn of the century, you begin to see the world that we exist in. And it's a shame that Oaks Ames, in a sense, he gave his life, you know, in this process of our finding our way to the world we're in now. And of course, the question that always remains is, in what ways is our world changing? In what ways are we arguing about it in terms that in 20 years or 50 years, we're going to look back and say, what were they talking about? Thank you very much. So um, we, I would be happy to take questions. It's 3.15, um, which is, I, I think, supposed to be the end of my, my talk. But I'm the last one, so I, I can stay as long as you can. Um, if you don't have any questions, then I'll, I'll make some up and pretend to answer some. Yes. But, yeah, and, and you know, again, this points to the fact that you know, a lot of the criticism that the transcontinental railways have, have come under is because, in a sense, they are, they are, we see them too much as private entities. You know, we treat them like a, a railway corporation in the East. You know, if Cornelius Vanderbilt couldn't, you know, deliver a dividend with basically what his career was much more about um, consolidating short lines that were built by local communities into lines that served an, an emerging national economy. And, and other railways were doing the same thing. In, in Pennsylvania, was Jay Gould's struggle to expand the Erie. You know, it was a, a struggle for corporate survival, but also it reflects the, you know, corporate strategy that matches changes in the national economy. But they were, you know, the New York Central ran from New York to Albany across all the industrial towns of, the, of northern New York to Buffalo to the, to the Great Lakes and then eventually connects to Chicago. If he couldn't deliver a dividend on the traffic, he was, he was a bad manager. But, uh, you know, that's a private corporation. Um, but, you know, Union Pacific, Northern Pacific, these, these early transcontinental railways are serving a, a national um, public policy priority. You know, we've got to connect to the West Coast. We need reliable land transportation. Um, you know, we had reliable sea transportation. But like I mentioned, you know, it took 25 days to get by sea with the, the Panama Railway, which cut the crossing of the isthmus to less than a day, up to um, New York. You know, San Francisco to New York, that's 25 days. Well, you know, that's, that's, not that's not forward-looking. Let's put it that way. That's not thinking about, you know, the future of the United States. And so, yeah, these are good investments today because that was a public priority, a public interest that was being served. And as Mari said, they were underfunded. You know, I mean, it was, it was government on the cheap which is the whole origin of the mercantilist corporation. Well, let's do stuff, but let's not you know, actually spend any money to do it. We'll get private investors to do it instead. And then that creates distortions in the marketplace, and it's, you know, they should have just funded the thing and, and then maybe sold it off to private investors once it made sense. Um, because, you know, the, the public policy priority is apparent to us today. You know, one thing we, we've mentioned, we've talked about last night, we were having dinner and talking about the symposium, is that, you know, today... Long-distance rail travel is, is a mess and isn't economical, even though I personally love it. Um, but our freight rail system is, is just about the best in the world. And 40% 40, 40 of all freight in America by ton-mile moves by rail. 
and it's great for the environment. It uses very, puts very little carbon into the atmosphere. It's cost efficient. It's very, it's very effective. I mean, there's a reason why Warren Buffett, you know, decided he was going to buy Burlington Northern, the entire thing, 100%. It's because he saw that the railways basically mirror their, their still to this day, the center of the American economy. You know, what moves by rail basically is what powers the American economy. And so, yeah, Union Pacific is still a great investment. And, uh, um, and you know, w- one of the wisest investors of recent decades put all his, put, you know, went whole hog into one of the major railways. And uh, so, you know, what's speculative and doesn't make sense in a business sense for one generation, you know, makes great sense in terms of national development. Uh, yes, the, the, this ill-informed gentleman over here in the... <laughs> Did he hear that? Yeah, he just mentioned, if, if you didn't hear him, that Charles Francis Adams, you know, the most famous critic of the railways, became, what, what year did he become president of the Union Pacific himself? In the early 1880s, Gould was gone from it. Yeah. But he, uh, he made a total mess of it. He was a terrible manager. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a case, you know, of course, deregulation is always controversial. And yet, you know, there are clear cases where I, frankly, there is no argument against it. And the dereg- you know, the railroads are the first big corporations. They were powerful because they were, or they were controversial because they were powerful. And, and the ways in which they changed, they went against the natural world where they would charge more for short haul than long haul between competitive points. It's what airlines do today. You know, we're used to it now, the fact that the economic world is not just equal to the natural world. But at the time, it drove people nuts. And so the actual anti-monopolist push in the 19th century had much more to do with power rather than the actual cost of the public. Transportation costs go down, 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 down. Railways consolidate. They make deals with each other. Still, the actual cost of transportation steadily goes down. But, you know, the power was very, it was huge and it was very real. And it was very controversial because people debate power. And so that, you know, it it was those political concerns not the fact that everybody was getting screwed by the railways that really drives a lot of that sentiment. But by the 20th century, it was time to deregulate, and it really had a great effect. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of really interesting threads that run through this. You know, uh, one thing we have to remember, we're talking about, you know, the railways were everything in the 19th century. I almost shouted this out when Mario was talking about it because it's one of my favorite facts. Um, I'm, it's a good thing I didn't. Um, and that's, you know, the, the uh, New York's, uh, stock exchange, which was the leading stock exchange er, even early in the 19th century, not the only one. Um, they traded until the Civil War, I think it was during the Civil War when they set up um, just open free trading on the, on the floor, uh, set up a freewheeling trading floor. But until the, the Civil War, middle of the Civil War, um, they traded stocks and bonds one at a time where they would call off, where are the, what are the bids and offers? And then they would write them on the big board. And then they would have lunch. And then they would go through the whole list again. And so that shows you how small the list of publicly traded companies was. You know, that they're doing this one by one, and they go through, you know, well, we still have an afternoon, let's do it again. Um, and so, you know, the way in which railways really dominate things is, is absolutely fascinating. And also, like I said, the way in which they're, industry in America and railways, I mean manufacturing, they're so closely tied together. And the way that, um, 
you know, that, that everything is, is affected by the railways. And so it's very interesting. I think it actually says a lot about Oaks Ames that, you know, he recognizes this. You know, he's in, you know, he's in a successful company and he's doing well. And yet, you know, he, he knew, I don't, I mean, I'm not an expert on him, but, you know, he knew where, you know, this, this is a big deal and being involved in it wasn't a bad, necessarily a bad thing. Well, it turned out not to be a great thing, but, um, you know, it was a draw. It pulled people in and Union Pacific swallowed and destroyed, uh, you know, a lot of other intelligent um, experienced managers. You know, it was, it was tough because as we said, it really was much more of a public work than it was a, a um, feasible private enterprise for a very long time. And it, uh, it, it would have been wiser if it had just been purely built. But doing things on the cheap, you know, kind of carving up the economy and handing it out to private parties, Adam Smith denounced corporations and the wealth of nations because that's what the king used to do. He would reward his buddies by saying, now you get a monopoly on silks to, um, you know, Liverpool. And that's the way corporations used to be all about. In the U.S., you know, Hamilton and others, they were mercantilists. They wanted to, you know, close off certain areas of the economy to encourage development where there hadn't been any. And so, you know, this change really was one of the big changes in, in American history and American life. But as we see in Credit Mobilier, it really had personal consequences for some people. Yes, sir. Hmm? That's, that's very funny. You know, the thing is that I, I love Charles Francis Adams Jr.'s writing. He's funny. I mean, a chapter of Erie is just, it's worth reading today. Like, it's fantastic. And um, he was wrong about a lot of stuff, but he tells the story so well. And he had that just wry, sardonic, sarcastic sense of humor and that the Adamses had. You know, they were superior, and that just gave them a really funny look at the world. But, you know, I actually talk about this with, with my Custer biography because Custer was somebody who was, by being an Army officer, he was professionally trained in a world that was just beginning to see professional training. And he went to an excellent engineering and military training school, West Point. He was a professional army officer, and the army was the organizational template of the corporation, as well as the source of many of the early railway engineers that came out of West Point. And, but he goes into the world, and he wants to make his mark. He's really eager. He's really good at fighting. And he's not very good at anything else. And, uh, and so he is someone who, you know, he goes to Wall Street. You know, he promises his wife he'll finally give up playing cards. He's always losing money at poker. So he finally lives by his agreement, and he goes to Wall Street, and he finds a broker. And he, he starts short-selling on the stock market and leaves his wife with a $9,000 debt. You know, he, he's someone who uh, he's, you know, involved with uh, Northern Pacific. His best pal, who had been his enemy in the Civil War, Tom Rosser, a Confederate general, is a senior engineer in Northern Pacific. He's got, you know, relatives of his army officers are engineers and officials in Northern Pacific. There's a lot of entanglement with the army. And with, oh, maybe one more question. Yes, ma'am. That's just incredible. Did everybody hear that? Union Pacific is building bridges for five-mile-long trains. I mean, and that's amazing. They've got a lot of work to do in Chicago. I mean, people in Chicago can't get anywhere because they're, they're not underground or on bridges. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing how much we rely on rail and how, what a great thing it is. And, you know, I, 
I'm a fan of, you know, just one of my things. I like to, I like to get a sleeper compartment and do an overnight trip. You know, it's, it's a little expensive. I can't do it very much, but I love it. And, but man, you know, they, they've got a certain window they've got to meet. And if Amtrak falls out of that window, they're off the schedule, you know? So your 15-minute delay can become a five-hour delay or 15-hour delay sometimes. And, you know, again, it's because once, once you know, passenger rail kind of slipped below a certain horizon and the, the investment in it is just not there. And in the future, we're not going to have much of a choice. We're going to have to invest in passenger rail for longer haul, medium haul at least. Did you have a question? Yes, that's right, yeah. That's actually a good question. I mean, this has turned it almost into a panel discussion. Um, who is it who came up with the, the, the title? Mari, what is the enigma of Oaks Ames? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, I would say personally, again, not being somebody who's done the in-depth research on Oaks Ames that they have. I mean, I came in with very much the view that you've, you've heard because I, you know, I have done my reading about credit mobility. I've read Mari's work and others as well pointed these things out. Um, and yet the enigma is the way, he, to me, and I want to hear what Mari thinks, the way he's got this image of being this corrupt, you know, the symbol of corruption and, the, and you know, the corrup corruption of, of private parties and stealing from government when, in fact, you know, he was a somebody who really symbolizes the success and the bootstrapping, in a sense, of American industry and American productivity, as somebody who answered the, the call of public service and then, in a way, got caught up in the way that all these changes that I've been talking about, and he got, he got caught in the gears as things are starting to change. I mean, to me, that's the enigma. Go ahead. Would you? Yeah, I'd I, I like to say that, you know, if you are reducing your, you know, you're starting to cast historical figures you're writing about as idiots or scoundrels, you've got to check yourself at the very least. You have to think, what is the logic by which, why are they doing this? It's like when, when Vanderbilt was in the midst of the struggle over the, the Erie Railway, you know, he's still buying stock even though he knows that, like, stock is being basically illegally produced and thrown on the market. But he understands the psychology of the market. He, he was in that world. He knew that if he suddenly stopped buying, you know, it would create all kinds of other problems for him. Like, you've got to understand he wasn't being an idiot. He'd never been an idiot. So why is he doing that? You know, and I've read other historians that for, you know, in it's totally incomprehensible why he did this. Well, no, there's a reason why. You know, why, you know, and you can be wrong, you can lose, and yet there's a logic to it. And you, so you've got to understand that world to understand that logic. Um, you know, this is where, like, my friends who are novelists, they talk about creating a complete and believable world. And so we're working from evidence. You know, our palette as painters is given to us. You know, we, we only have the, the paints that we're handed. But, but we've got to use it to, to really understand that world and to bring it on the page so that, yes, of course they did this. Yes, of course they thought this way. That, that, you know, I get it. You know, this is why they were thinking this way. And, you know, they may fail with Union Pacific. It doesn't mean everyone's going to be successful. They can make dumb choices or they can make wrong choices. But they're doing it for a reason. You're trying to get inside that logic and under, get inside that world. Very few people think of themselves as scoundrels. And so usually they've got reasons in their head. Sometimes they're, they're self-justifying. Sometimes they make a lot of sense and they just had bad luck. Sometimes they misread the world. But, you know, when you're a historian, you, take, you, you get too worried about getting on your high horse. You know, it doesn't mean excuse everybody because people do awful things that people recognize as awful at the time. 
but you know if your main goal is to just show that you are personally superior to everyone you're writing about you've gone off the rails you've got to understand them in their world okay thank you very much well that that is the end of the symposium part and uh, uh, TJ you, you summed it up very nicely and uh, thank you Ford for the question and uh, it gets back to that quote earlier about Abraham Lincoln to Oaks and the irony of it you will be the remembered man of your generation so, so hopefully we're, we're trying to put some truth to uh, Abraham Lincoln's statement. Uh, but again, I want to thank all the speakers here. I, this, this was excellent. I learned a terrible amount. And uh, I don't know what that means, a terrible amount. I, learned a, I guess I meant to say an awful amount. But anyway, and I think that's it. Oh, yes, and one, one final thanks uh, to Nicole, who uh, put on a great show and kept things running smoothly. And I, and I think that's it, unless anybody else has uh, any, any other announcements. Um, the reception will be next. Thanks.